Today is a great day to start your own podcast. Whether you're looking for a new marketing channel, have a message you want to share with the world, or just think it would be fun to have your own talk show, podcasting is an easy, inexpensive, and fun way to expand your reach online. Buzzsprout is hands down the easiest and best way to launch, promote, and track your podcast. Your show can be online and listed in all the major podcast directories like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and more within minutes of finishing your recording. Podcasting isn't hard when you have the right partners, and the team at Buzzsprout is passionate about helping you succeed. Join over 100,000 podcasters already using Buzzsprout to get their message out to the world. Check our show notes where you can find a link which will earn you a $20 Amazon gift card sent after your second paid invoice when you choose one of their paid plans. And let me tell you something, that means that you can try Buzzsprout and doing a podcast for yourself for two months for a total of $24 and then get $20 back by way of an Amazon gift card. Sound too good to be true? It's not. Go to Buzzsprout via the link that we've got in our show notes or on our website under the listener offers section and get started today. Bella and I use Buzzsprout. We love it and we know you will too. And using the link will also help to support our show. So everyone's a winner. Okay, let's get back on with the show. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Weird, Wacky and Wonderful Stories podcast with your hosts, Shelley and Bella. Hey everybody and welcome to episode 70 of the Weird, Wacky and Wonderful Stories podcast. Hi everybody. Today we're going to do something a little bit different, starting our 70th decade of podcasts. Decade? What? It's not been a decade. The 70th decade, it's like starting the oh, 70s. Oh right, okay. There we yeah. go, Ben's no. dropped. No, no, it's the 20s. What are you on about, woman? 2020s. I still think I'm sad. Because I liked episode 69. I know. Actually, we've got a lot of good feedback about episode 69. Apparently, there's a lot of people who like 69s. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, then. So, we are going to do something a little bit different on this episode because we're actually going to do something about a mystery. So, Weird, Wacky, Wonderful, we can do absolutely anything we want as long as it falls into that category. And one of the things that does is this mystery it is definitely weird. There are no answers fully today, but I think that we may have cracked it ourselves, you know, or a little part of it today during our research. Oh, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, right. We actually could find out, and we're being all cryptic, haha, but we could actually have a resolution to this particular mystery very soon. We may well do. We may well do. So let's learn a little bit about it. Right. So, first of all, where did all this start? What's going on? All right, then. Here we go. On November 30th, 1948, a couple walking along the Somerton Park Beach in Australia, just 11 kilometers from Adelaide, spotted a man lying on the beach with his head propped against the seawall. They saw him at 7 p.m. and witnessed him extend his arm and then drop it limply. Another couple saw him about 8 p.m. and they said that he was in his view for about half an hour and they didn't see him move. But they did have the impression that his position had changed. They assumed he was drunk or asleep. They also mentioned that they'd seen a man who was at the top of the steps above looking at him. So like up on a wall... Well, so yeah, the, the sea, looking down. where the seawall that he was leaning against, there were steps going up there, and on the top of that was obviously the promenade or whatever, and apparently someone was looking down at him from there. The next morning, another couple noticed the man in the same position as the other witnesses while walking along the beach, and then again when they returned. They raised the alarm, and the police attended to find a man lying on his back with his head against the seawall, his legs were extended and his feet were crossed. The police figured he died while he was sleeping. Police found an unlit cigarette on the right collar of his coat. He had an unused second-class rail ticket from Adelaide to Henley Beach, a bus ticket, 
which they could not be confirmed had been used or not. They found an aluminium American comb, or as the Americans would call it... Aluminum. And half an empty pack of juicy fruit gum. An army club cigarette pack, which had seven cigarettes in it, but all of a different brand to the actual pack itself. They also found a box of Bryant and May matches that were a quarter full. That's weird. It's like... It's like maybe he ran out of cigarettes at some point, right? And then he he said to somebody, hey, you got some cigarettes I could borrow or bum or whatever? And they gave him some and he stuck them in his pack, you know, so they wouldn't get all... It's just kind of strange. Why would you do that? Well, because it may be that you're trying to present yourself as someone else. So maybe the pack, which we know was an army club pack was from one country and the cigarettes which were inside it were from another country which he bought he maybe just kept the pack to reuse over and over again yeah but why would you do that i mean what's the point well maybe he was trying to present himself as someone who he wasn't let's continue should we take the time now to let people know that we're actually talking about the summerton man case well that was going to come up in a second but yes we are talking about the summerton man case obviously he was found on the summerton park beach and they don't have a name for him so that's what they're terming him as so 11 years later after they found this guy witnesses came forward saying that they had seen a well-dressed man carrying another man on his shoulders on summerton beach the night before the man was found a police report was filed now what were they doing listening to the radio or reading the paper and then they go oh hey Remember when we went to the beach 11 years ago and we saw that guy walking along carrying another guy? Yeah, because it did receive a lot of press at the time because obviously they were trying to find out who this man was. So it's a bit weird that they didn't come forward, like you said, within the 11 years. I mean, 11 years later? And how did they specifically know that it was... That date, I mean, yeah. it would be what nice. Were you, what were you doing on the November 30th? What were you doing on the 30th of November? Yeah, I wouldn't know what I was doing on the 30th of November last year. <laughs> so there, were, there was a lot of interest in the late 40s and early 50s. And in fact, the South Australian police asked foreign law enforcement agencies, including the FBI and Scotland Yard, if they knew of the man, and they circulated his fingerprints, photographs, etc., but nothing was found. I guess back then maybe it wasn't as weird because, you know, they didn't have they the wouldn't computers have necessarily and had the national the computer systems. Do. Yeah, they would have had local computer systems or, or local filing systems, but not necessarily a national database the way they do now. Yeah, people actually had to le- earn their money, not just know how to type. <laughs> yeah, that was when investigators had magnifying glasses. Mm-hmm. The pathologist named John Burton Cleland, concluded that he was of British appearance. And he was also able to say that he was between 40 and 45. He was in top physical condition. He was 5 feet 11 inches tall. He had gray eyes, light to reddish colored hair, slightly gray on the temples. He had broad shoulders and a narrow waist. His hands and nails were well kept So he didn't look like somebody who did any manual work. His toes were wedge-shaped like a dancer or someone who wore pointed shoes or boots. And that's actually important later, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Well, actually, a lot of what you've just said is important later, if you follow my theory on it. True. He had well-defined calf muscles, like someone who was a dancer or someone who wore high heels. Don't say it. (laughs) Cross-dressing corpse. I didn't say it. I, you I said saw it. the look in your uh, eyes. Well, you know, the fact that you knew what I was thinking was even worse. He had a white shirt on, red, white, and blue tie, brown trousers, socks, and shoes, a brown knitted pullover, a gray and brown double-breasted jacket that looked American-made. All the labels of his clothes were removed. So to me, that's weird. But as it turns out, it's maybe not that weird, is it? He didn't have a hat which was uncommon back then. Most men wore a hat. Uh, He had no wallet. He was clean shaven. He had no identification whatsoever on his body and no dental records could be found to match him anywhere, which is kind of cool because later we learn about how that plays a big part in it all too. Yeah, during the autopsy as well, it was discovered that his heart was normal 
He had small vessels in the brain which normally are not easy to see that could be seen in this case because of congestion. There was also congestion of the pharynx and gullet with a lot of white mucus and ulceration. His stomach was congested. There was congestion in the second half of the duodenum, or as you say... Duodenum. Blood was mixed with food in his stomach. Both kidneys were congested. The liver had a lot of blood in the vessels. The spleen was three times its normal size. There were also significant damage to the liver lobules, acute gastritis and hemorrhage, extensive congestion to the liver and spleen and the brain. The pathologist was able to determine the time of death at around 2am of December the 1st. The last thing he ate was a pasty about three to four hours before he died. Now, in case you don't know what a pasty is, in the UK here, it's, it's quite a common thing. And in fact, if you go to Cornwall, you can get Cornish pasties there, and they are essentially a meat and vegetable wrapped in a puff pastry. My mouth's watering now thinking about it. Puff pastry case, which is crimped around the edges. So it's like a half moon shaped. With it's a like a calzone, but it's not pizza inside. It's, it's yeah, meat I've heard and it potatoes. mentioned like a calzone before. It's nothing like a calzone well, but it's because a calzone like is one. covered in bread. And this is, yes, it's shaped like one. Okay, yeah. yeah. It's usually beef skirt with carrots, potatoes, and why are you <laughs> looking at me with a smirk on your face? Because I said I beef thinking, skirt. Yeah, I was thinking about a cow in a tutu. <laughs> oh, right. I thought, you, I thought you were being rude. No. Because I've heard them called beef curtains before. Oh, no. Ew. Well, I'm just no. saying. Right, move okay. Move on. Yeah, move on. So, <laughs> so, anyway, as well as that, in the crust years ago, especially in the mines in Cornwall, in the old tin mines. Yeah, before the old um, health and safety food... Executive. Hygiene, yeah, yeah. blah, blah, blah. They used to put fruit in the crust that went around the edge. So the miners would eat the main body of the pasty, which would be their meat and vegetables. And then the outside of it would become their dessert. Anyway. I would love to have one like that once, just to see. I'll make you one. Yeah, okay. Although the tests didn't show any foreign substances in the body, the pathologist concluded that death was not natural and thought that it may be a barbiturate overdose or an overdose of a soluble hypnotic. The pasty did not show any kind of poison. Can I just ask you about a soluble hypnotic? Do well, you know anything about hypnotic drugs? Well, not personally. No, what I'm but saying I would is, assume, is that like, say, belladonna that's in liquid form, you know, something that's... So what is a hypnotic drug? Something that would put you almost in a state where you would become suggestible uh, to? Well, it'd make you tired, basically, like a barbiturate would. It'd make, make you feel high, like, I want to add something here. They now know, well, they don't know because obviously he's not here anymore and they can't test it, but it's widely now believed that what was used was digitalis, which is a medicine that they give to people now it can cause all these same sort of things if you have too much of it what they believe somerton man had yeah. digitalis really yeah oh, i didn't read that bit thank you very much for that important mm -hmm. bit of input you're welcome yeah i i pictured a hypnotic drug being something like you'd get injected with it well, and, no, then if, and then if someone said purple you'd become a chicken <laughs> is that not no, I don't think so. Right, okay, fine. Okay. <laughs> they also embalmed the body on December the 10th, 1948. On January 14th, 1949, a suitcase was found at the Adelaide Railway Station. It was brown with the label removed and it had been checked in at 11 a.m. on November 30th, 1948, which was the day before he, this Somerton man was found on the beach. Within the suitcase, they found a red checked dressing gown, a size 7 pair of red slippers, four pairs of underpants, pajamas, shaving items, a light brown pair of trousers with sand in the cuffs, which that's a little odd. You know, he's on a beach and, you know, this other pair of his trousers have sand in the cuffs. An electrician screwdriver, a table knife, cut down to a short, sharp instrument, a pair of scissors with sharpened points, a small square of zinc thought to be used as a protective sheath for the knife and scissors, a stenciling brush, which is used by officers on merchant ships to stencil the names of the cargo as it's being brought onto the ship, a thread card of Barbara Brand orange waxed thread that was not available in Australia, 
and the thread was the same thread that was used to repair the lining in a pocket of the trouser the dead man was wearing. So I guess that's how they... Linked the two, linked the case yeah. with, the, with the body. None of the clothes had any labels except for a tie, which was labeled T. Keen, a laundry bag labeled Keen, and then a singlet labeled Keen, in which they just spelled it differently, and three dry cleaning marks. The police thought that maybe the name tags were either overlooked or they were left there as this actually wasn't the dead man's real name. There were no socks in the suitcase. That's something to think about because when the body was found, he was wearing socks and there was underwear in the suitcase and there were slippers and even even a dressing gown and yet no socks. It's a bit weird, isn't it? Yeah, you can tell a woman did not pack his suitcase. (laughs) There was no (laughs) correspondence but they did find pencils and unused stationery. That's weird, because today they'd be like, they didn't find any emails and no laptop. (laughs) But they found a mouse in there. (laughs) Yeah, exactly, yeah. The police checked and found no T. Keen, K-E-A-N-E, missing in any English-speaking country. The dry cleaning marks did not lead anywhere. The dry cleaning marks, I don't know if they do the same here, but... After something's dry clean, they'll put a little teeny thing on the actual clothing. It's either Mm. pinned or stapled, and it'll have a number on it. And that's, I think, what they're talking about here. So they didn't lead anywhere. The only thing that they could tell was that the front gusset and feather stitching on a coat indicated that it had been manufactured in the U.S. The coat wasn't imported, so it was either bought by him in the States or... It was bought secondhand from someone who had been there. There was an inquest into the death, but it was adjourned until June 17th, 1949. They probably had to because they didn't really have anything to say, did they? Mm. (laughs) There's nothing really to... Well, they were trying to find out if they could locate who he was first. Yeah. The pathologist looked at the body again after the adjournment and said that the man's shoes were remarkably clean and appeared to have been polished recently. And this supported a theory that the man might have been killed somewhere else and then brought to Somerton Beach. Uh, And another reason that they thought that this might be the case is because there was no signs of any vomiting or convulsions or anything at the scene. And uh, that, they're saying, would have been consistent if he had been poisoned. So after the inquest was over... They made a plaster cast of the man's head and shoulders so that they could make a bust so that they could continue to try to figure out who this guy was. Around the same time as the inquest in a fob pocket of the dead man's trousers, they found a tiny piece of paper with the words to mom should written upon it. It was rolled up really tight, wasn't it? Yeah. Now, to mom should is spelled T-U-M-A-M-S-H-U-D. And they brought in a library official who identified it as meaning ended or finished. And it came from the last page of the Rubiat of Omar Khayyam. The Rubiat of Omar Khayyam was written in the 12th century by the Persian poet. Its theme is that one should live life to the fullest and have no regrets when it ends. I wonder if that plays a part in it. Police conducted an Australia-wide search to find a copy of the book that it may have come out of and released a photograph of it to the press. They found the book. It was a 1941 edition of Edward Fitzgerald's 1859 translation of the Rubiat that was published in New Zealand. Incidentally, I have just bought you the Rubiat. You did? Of Omar Khayyam, yes. Oh, awesome, because I yeah. was looking. I was thinking I need to get it so I can yeah. we, we can add it to our collection, even though we don't have Omar well, here. we can't. But we can. Why? Because I bought it on Kindle. <laughs> Oh, uh, okay then. I'll, 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 get, yeah. I'll, I'll get you the I'll get you the written one, the proper book as well. But yeah, I just thought you'd find that interesting. Yes, yes, I will. I'll read it, and then I'll be like, "Oh, wake up, wake up!" Because I usually read when you're asleep. Listen to this. And yeah, like, wake up, not, wake up. Listen not. to well, this. Just so that people know, a rubiat, by the way, is a quatrain. It's a four-line poem yeah. that was popular around the time. The police sergeant who interviewed the person who came forward with the copy did not name him. He used a pseudonym, which he tended to do a lot with people that didn't necessarily want to be named. I guess, you know, that'd be like a contact or something that, Mm. that, you know, like now they would 
they would say, oh, no, I can't give up my source. Yeah, he's an informer. Yeah, an informant. So he used the pseudonym Ronald Francis. And to this day, we still don't know who that book actually belonged to. Mm. On the inside back cover of that book, they found indentations of handwriting and they included a telephone number, an unidentified number and text that resembled an encrypted message. The book was found in the rear footwell of a car at the time that the body was found. However, there's actually uncertainty about the book being found there because some people say it was found a week or two before the body was found and other reports say that it was found shortly after the body was found on the beach. And if it was found one or two weeks before, then it means that he was in Adelaide before this whole thing that led to his death. So uh, that that doesn't really fit, does it? So, exactly. Yeah. Most accounts say that the book was found in an unlocked car in Glenegue on the either the back seat or the real footwell of the car. Also inside the book, there were faint indentations of five lines of text in capital letters. The second line had been struck out. And people think that this is significant as it's very similar to the fourth line. Therefore, they think it may have been an error in encryption. Initially, it was thought that these lines of text may be words in a foreign language, but later they were thought to be a code. Experts were brought in, but they couldn't decipher it. In 1978, Department of Defence cryptographers weren't able to decode it either, and they said that the text could be the meaningless product of a disturbed mind. Quote, unquote. <laughs> the phone number in the book belonged to a nurse named Jessica Ellen, or Joe Thompson. She lived in Glenelg, about 1,300 feet away from where the body was found. She told police that she didn't know the man and didn't know why he had her phone number or why he would be so close to her house. That's weird, isn't it? So she either lied or she had one hell of a stalker. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Police asked neighbours and found one who said that a man fitting the description of the dead man was seen knocking on Jessica Thompson's door the day before he was found, although Miss Thompson denies all knowledge of this. Some believe that she was being evasive. Years later, in a 2014 TV interview, Thompson's daughter Kate believed her mother did know who Somerton Man was after her mother admitted to her that she lied and that he was, quote, also known to a higher level than the police force, unquote. So somebody knew who he was, but they were above the police force, and yeah. so the police were on a need-to-know basis, and they didn't need to know type of thing. Or at least she decided that mm. the police didn't need to know. Kate believes that both her mother and Somerton Man were both spies. She said that her mom taught English to migrants, was interested in communism, and could speak Russian fluently, but she would not tell her daughter where or why she learned it. See, if it was me, like, I would say to my kid, oh, yeah, I learned that back in school when I was, you know, whatever. Mm. Just to be like, mm, I'm not saying. That's a That's even odd more too. incriminating, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it sounds like she probably was being evasive. Jessica asked the police to keep her name confidential as she thought it may harm her reputation to be linked to the case. And that's interesting because during the research, there are like, she's got a name, this one name in this part of it, and then another name down in the other part of it. And so you're going, who's that? And you're going, but we actually had to draw a, a family tree thing out to try to... Just to try and get a grip on this. Yeah. <laughs> In 2010, permission was given by the Thompson family to disclose her name because they thought that maybe her name was important in being a key part to decipher the text that was found in the back of the book. When she was shown the plaster cast bust of the dead man, she said she didn't know who it was, but the detective described her reaction upon seeing it as completely taken aback to the point of giving the appearance that she was about to faint. Well... If she was a spy, that's probably... Um, yeah, that's... You'd think she'd be able to... Be part of your tradecraft, wouldn't it? Yeah. To be to totally blank. If you can't be deceptive, yeah. you shouldn't be a spy. Unless she was romantically involved with him. Maybe she wasn't... Maybe he wasn't just a spy, or maybe she... Maybe he was the spy and she wasn't. She wasn't, yeah. You know, she was just in love with the man. Don't know. She looked at it once and would not look at it again. Thompson also said that she owned a copy of the Rubiot, but that in 1945 she gave it to an army lieutenant named Alf Boxall. 
She then moved to Melbourne and got married. That's weird. Like, why would she just give it to whoever this army lieutenant was? Well, she may have had a relationship with that army lieutenant. I mean, you've given books to people. I've given books to people. But, yeah, you know? but say she's a spy or say she isn't. And she's and, and it was just the Somerton man that was a spy, right? And she knows that somehow this is a key book in there. Why would she go and Well, hang on one? a minute. It wasn't just a key book. It was a popular book. Okay. So a lot of people but would have had this book back in the day. Maybe he was a spy too, and it was some sort of a, a message to him. Well, interestingly, he was an army lieutenant, so mm. he was definitely in the, the military, wasn't he? However, there's no evidence of any further communication between the two of them. So she gives him the book, and then she fucks off, and nobody... The police thought that Boxel may have been the dead man, but in July 1949, they found him alive and his copy of the Rubiat that she gave to him was still in his possession and intact. In the front of his copy of the Rubiat, Jessica Harkness, a pseudonym of Jessica Thompson, had signed it as Justin, capital J-E, and then lowercase S-T-Y-N, and written out verse 70 of the Rubiat, and it is, Indeed, indeed, repentance oft before, I swore, but was I sober when I swore. And then, and then came spring, and rose in hand, my threadbare penitence, a pieces tore. Summerton Man was buried in 1949. Years after the burial, flowers started appearing on the grave. Around the same time as that, a receptionist at the Strathmore Hotel, opposite Adelaide train station, which is where the suitcase was found, don't forget, revealed that a man stayed in room 21 or 23 for a few days around the time of the death and that he checked out on the 30th of November 1948. That's really weird. So that was the day before. But then, so you get years later, these flowers start showing up and a receptionist goes, wait, hold on. You know, there was this weird guy that stayed in room 21, um, maybe 23, and um, guess what? He checked out on the 30th of November. Where the hell was she? Was she off that day when the police came and said, you know? Yeah, did she avoid all the newspapers that were carrying the story at the time? It always concerns me when people do come out this this late after the, after the actual event. Yeah, because it's like they're trying to jump onto the train or whatever. Interestingly, she said that he was English-speaking. She didn't say he was English. English-speaking. So we don't know whether there was an accent or anything there, which I think might be relevant. And only had a small black case like a musician or a doctor may carry. An employee looked inside the case and he told the receptionist that there was an object in there that looked like a needle. Hmm. On November 22nd, 1959, ten years later... A guy named E.B. Collins, who was in prison in New Zealand, claimed he knew the guy, the Somerton man, but there is no further information on this. In early January in 1949, two people identified the body as a guy named Robert Walsh, who was a 63-year-old former woodcutter. Walsh had left Adelaide several months earlier and had not been seen again. But that's interesting because... The woodcutter bit fits, doesn't it? But they didn't really take this too seriously because they thought that 63 was way too old. It doesn't for... fit. It doesn't fit because his hands weren't of a manual laborer. And the they... woodcutter would have definitely, because of the sawing and the axing and everything else, would have definitely had calluses on their hands. So, no, I don't think it does fit. In February of 1949, there had been eight different identifications of the body, but nothing ever came of these either. He might not have been too popular when he was alive, but he sure was after he died, wasn't he? A seaman who was in port at the time of the death was reportedly the Somerton Man, but after fellow shipmates came forward to identify the body, they confirmed that it was not the seaman. In November 1953... The police said that they had received 251 identifications of the body, all of which were incorrect. In 2011, an Adelaide woman contacted a biological anthropologist, Matcha Hennenberg, 
about an identification card of an H.C. Reynolds that she'd found in her father's possessions. She gave it to Henneberg on October of 2011 so that he could compare it to the photograph of the Somerton man, and he was able to find what he called a unique identifier, which was a mole on the cheek, which was the same cheek and of the same shape in both photographs. The card was issued in the US on the 28th of February 1918 to an H.C. Reynolds, given his nationality as British, and he was 18. However, searches by the US National Archives, UK National Archives and the Australian War Memorial Research Centre failed to find any records at all relating to H.C. Reynolds. Some independent researchers believe the ID card belonged to a Horace Charles Reynolds from Tasmania who died in 1953 and therefore could not have been the Somerton man. It's weird though, isn't it? Because he's saying that that was a unique identifier and yet even that wasn't enough for them to go, okay, this is who it is. Yeah. And I wonder if that's just because it would, maybe it was just too easy or something. It's just weird how some things people just won't let go and then other things, you know, like if, if, if something happened to you and I had to go identify your body. Steady on. Well, I'm just saying. Well, like, what about if it happened to you? Okay, well, all right. Well, if you had to go to morgue <laughs> to identify me, you know, you know I've got tattoos and you know what they are. It wouldn't be your tattoos I'd be looking at. And you know where they are. So if they said, well, we've, you know, we found this and she's got this kind of tattoo and you go, oh, yeah, that's a unique identifier. That's definitely her. And then they go, "Mm, nah, don't think so. They'd only need to show me one part of your body and I'd know it was you. Mm. Hmm. Uh-huh. What part? The little mole you got on your hand there. Well, just go and tell everybody now. Well, I'm just saying. But then again, that would be a unique identifier, a mole. And therefore, I could be wrong. So yeah. maybe I won't go by the I'm mole. I'm not the only flipping person in the world who's got a mole on her hand. Do you know, let's put it this way, the only thing in the world that can be identified by a mole. What? A mole. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I yep. couldn't do that. That's to the mole. That's yeah. the fucker that dug up my garden. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that was a unique mole. Anyway, go on, carry on. In March 2009, a University of Adelaide team led by Professor Derek Abbott started again and went back to basics and thought, okay, they started looking at the code again. And it had been determined the letter frequency was considerably different from letters written down randomly. The frequency was to be further tested to determine if the alcohol level of the writer could alter random distribution. The format of the code also appeared to follow the quatrain format of the Rubiat, supporting the theory that the code was a one-time pad encryption algorithm. Copies of the Rubiat, as well as the Talmud and Bible, were being compared to the code using computers to get a statistical base for letter frequencies. However, the code's short length meant that the investigators would require the exact edition of the book used. With the original copy lost in the 1960s, researchers have been looking for a Fitzgerald edition without success. So if you have a Fitzgerald edition of the Rubiat, then you could be onto something there. Yeah. In 2009, they proposed exhuming the body to test for DNA, but it was denied. An investigation failed to find the original autopsy report or any notes made by Cleland about the Somerton man. So check this out. They lost the copy of the Rubiat, the one that they had in evidence. Yeah. They lost that, and they've now lost the autopsy report and all of the notes made by Cleland. Does this shout to you like some kind of cover-up? Mm-hmm. You know, if Could the police... Be. If the police were of a not in a need-to-know basis because they were lower down on the food chain than the people who needed to know about this, the fact mm. that now things are going missing is also a little bit suspect to me. But anyway, Matcha Henneberg, Professor of Anatomy at the University of Adelaide, looked at images of the Somerton man's ears and found that his upper ear hollow is larger than his lower ear hollow. And this is something that only 1% to 2% of the Caucasian population have. I wonder how many people are checking their ears now. Yeah, right. In 2009, he consulted with dental experts who said that the Somerton man had a rare genetic disorder 
called hypodontia of both lateral incisors, a feature present in only 2% of the general population. Oh, I guess they picked the wrong guy to be a supposed spy if he was. If he was a spy, right? yeah. And they're going to look at you and go, let me see your teeth. Mm, okay. And then, let me see your ear. Mm, no, sorry, you can't be a spy. <laughs> yeah. Well, in 2010, Abbott got a picture of Jessica Thompson's son, whose name was Robin, which showed that he, just like Somerton Man, had these same two characteristics. And the chance of this being coincidental is estimated at being between 1 in 10 million and 1 in 20 million. So, he's got her phone number. He's 1,300 feet from her house. house. When he's found dead, yeah. Right? She's got a son who's got the same rare genetic... Characteristics. Characteristics. But she didn't know him. <laughs> well, the funny thing is, is the media then suggested that Robin, who was 18 months old in 1948 and died in 2009, may have been the child of Somerton Man and was passed off as Prosper Thompson's son. So a DNA test of Robin's that could be compared with the sample from the Somerton Man if he had been exhumed could have proved or disproved that they were related. However, it was denied on the grounds that there would need to be more of a need than just scientific interest and public curiosity to have someone exhumed. Abbott found that Robin Thompson and his wife Roma had a child who they put up for adoption. Abbott set about finding her and actually did find her and after spending a weekend together they fell in love. In 2010, Abbott married the daughter of Robin Thompson. Her name was Rachel, and she was possibly the granddaughter of Somerton Man and Jessica Thompson. Robin Thompson's widow, Roma Egan, and their daughter, Rachel Egan, said that they all believed that Somerton Man was, in fact, Robin Thompson's father. Don't forget, Robin Thompson was the guy who was 18 months when Somerton Man died. Yeah. And yeah. Jessica Thompson's son. Yep. So Abbott and Rachel Egan now have three children who would potentially be the Somerton man's great-grandchildren. The Egans made an application to the Attorney General of South Australia to get the Somerton man's body exhumed. Kate Thompson opposed the exhumation as being disrespectful to her brother. Now, Kate Thompson is someone who we haven't spoken about because actually Jessica Thompson had a daughter as well as Robin, okay, Robin, her son. With she had a daughter called Kate who was Jessica and Prosper's right. daughter. So so that would mean that Jessica and Robin were half-brother and half-brother. No, Kate and Robin. Robin was brought up to all intents and purposes as Jessica and Prosper's son. Correct. So Kate, his sister, thought that it would have been disrespectful to have then, after he died, declare that actually Prosper wasn't his father all along, yeah. that it was actually Somerton Man's. In 2017, three hairs were found in the plaster cast of the Somerton Man and could be used to build a DNA profile. So they didn't need to exhume him at that stage. They had these three hairs. In 2018, the University of Adelaide team obtained a high-definition analysis of the mitochondrial DNA from the hair samples and found that he and his mother belonged to the haplogroup H4A1A1A, which is possessed by only 1% of Europeans. I guess the reason that they still aren't able to get a full DNA probe. Maybe, maybe the hair wasn't enough. Maybe they couldn't replicate enough of it to... Well, I believe it's true that you can only actually get mitochondrial DNA from hair samples anyway. Yeah, possibly. That would explain why they still need to have him exhumed because they don't have the father's half, only the mother's half. And they already know that she's the mother. Yeah. So... So in October 2019, so what's this, three months ago? Yeah. South Australian Attorney General actually granted conditional approval for the exhumation of Somerton Man to collect DNA samples. So we may actually have an answer, certainly as to who his parents were, very soon. But then the poor Abbott 
Mr. Rabbit. I don't know what he's going to do because he's been pushing for this for so long. And so has his wife. And, you know, now they've got three children who they, they that's conceivably their great, 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 one great, would it be? Great or great, great. great. So, be their great and anybody doesn't now we don't know what the hell we're talking about it would be the summer to me would be their great grandfather so this has been going on for so long it would be good for this family i think to get some closure anyway mm, definitely but yeah mr rabbit it, it could all come down to him being persistent and that interested and stubborn i mean even his wife rachel says she thinks probably part of the reason they got married was because because of the dna <laughs> I really, think, I think she was probably joking, but but yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? You know, looking back on it, because I mean, that's the facts that we wanted to give you here. But looking back on it, and we've done a a lot of research on this today. We were even expecting to go out and buy a dishwasher, but that didn't happen because we were too busy researching this. So yeah, no dishwasher for. So does that mean you're going to do any dishes that we get? Tonight. Anyway, we're getting a takeaway tonight, so we. Oh um, right, okay. So dishes from lunch are still down there. You'll take care of those. I always take care of those, don't I? I took care of the, the ones from dinner last night. Ooh, listen to somebody's getting a little bit tense, I think. Ooh, anyway, I anyway. said, I said, so we can wait. We don't have to get the dishwasher yet. But no, you're like, no, I want the dishwasher because I'm tired of doing dishes. <laughs> That's not how it went. <laughs> yes, it is. Okay, so <laughs> let's look at the pathologist's report again a minute because we did actually write it down and, and didn't lose it. So... It says here, first of all, he was in top physical condition. No, he wasn't. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. He's in top physical condition other than the fact he's dead. Yeah. yeah. Dead and his, I mean, his heart's okay, but, you know, everything yeah. else is fucked. I but, think, yeah. yeah, I think they meant out externally he was in top physical condition. So, you know, a dancer, which is one of the things that I've put forward, could possibly be it, couldn't it? You know, if he was a, a dancer of some kind, then he would be in top physical condition. He'd also be in top physical condition, hopefully, if he was a spy. Now, it also said he was 5 foot 11 tall, talked about his hair. He had broad shoulders and narrow waist. That's, again, another another dancer trait because they have very good stomach muscles from all of mm -hmm. the lifts and everything that they do within ballet. The small waist and the broad shoulders is actually another really strong characteristic of ballet dancers especially his toes were deformed and they specifically said the pathologist specifically said that that would be another trait of someone who wore ballet shoes because obviously ballet shoes my mother and my sister were both ballerinas and and they attested to this themselves that it really does ruin your toes because all of your weight is on the tips of your toes and it really does buckle and, and damage them i don't think your mom and your sister are going to be happy when they find out that the whole world now has the potential to know that they got messed up feet. Well, they haven't actually. Their feet are okay, but they, they, weren't, <laughs> they didn't do point work for a long time. So kiss, well, kiss my mother's toes. Well, so, no, but the other thing is that's very interesting is that Robin was a professional ballerina, wasn't he? Yeah, professional well, dancer. that's it. Jessica Thompson actually one day without warning enrolled him in dance lessons and he later became a professional ballet dancer yeah so it's like where'd that come from maybe that was a bit of an homage to his real father mm. and why was it without warning and everything well because it may have been the case that prosper thompson wasn't necessarily into dance and therefore well, maybe she didn't want him to know that she wanted him to do dance because it was you know a something about another man because i mean you know if it's true and he did raise robin he obviously had to be in on it to say that oh yeah he's my he is my son you know so mm -hmm. you got this man who is willing to give the boy his name and treat him just like his own you know and then i think it would almost be a slap in the face if you think about it like or maybe he did know who knows? Maybe he did know, and maybe he thought that was a fitting sort of tribute or something. Yeah, well, the Cold War is said to have started in around 1946, okay? So he could, in my mind, I think he was probably a Russian spy. You think? Um, well, I think so, because he 
I'd obviously been travelling to potentially America. He had some items that originated in America on him, like, for instance, his jacket. Both jackets, the one in the case and the one he was wearing, Came. both, they said, were were American. I believe that the the twine, the waxed cotton... The orange... Yeah, that he had on him... Thread. ...was British-made. He had a... New Zealand or was associated with a New Zealand copy of the yeah. Rubiat, which, okay, could have been bought anywhere. Theoretically, it could have been in a second-hand shop anywhere. We got to go looking in some charity shops now for the Rubiat. Yeah. <laughs> well, I just think that it... it really shows that there was a lot of travel. I think that the fact that Jessica Thompson could speak Russian fluently, I think that potentially he was a Russian spy. And Dancer, well, you know, the Russians fund a lot of their, or certainly did fund a lot of their dance was was government funded at the time because it was a way to put Russia on the map. So I think that he could have been... A Russian dancer turned spy. Could be. I mean, I guess that's as good as any other sort of thing at the moment. And the cool thing is that we could have a part two of this because now that we know that they have been given conditional approval to get the DNA, maybe now, finally, this can be put to rest. Well, yes, but it's only really going to show a link between Robin and Summerton Man, isn't it? It's not going to say that it's not going to give us the answers as to whether he was a spy. It's not going to give us an answer as to why he happened to be in Adelaide on that particular day, why he missed the bus that he was supposed to have gotten on. There's a whole load of things. We will put the links to some of the information that we've got in our show notes so that you can have a look at it as well. You can have and a look at the codes that were left and see if you can decipher those. There's a pretty cool quote in the Rubiat, isn't there, that we found, which I think is a really good way to end this show today. And I'll let you read it because you're more of a poet than me, but have a read of the quote that we found. The moving finger writes, and having writ moves on. Nor all thy piety and wit shall lure it back to cancel half a line, nor all thy tears wash out a word of it. And what is the explanation that we found of that quatrain? Well, basically, you know, whatever you do in your life, that's your own responsibility and it can't be undone. And that is as final as finality gets, isn't it? And yeah, it is. It is. I, I, I do hope that they find some more out about it eventually. Yeah, it would be nice to know. And it would be nice to know what those string of letters mean and whether the Rubiat was actually some kind of one-time pad used within that cipher. I think if it weren't for the Rubiat and the suitcase sort of thing, people probably never would have, you know, uh, even heard of it. The fact that it had that code, though, that just begs for conspiracy theories and people's imaginations just can go wild, can't they? Well, also that Tamam Shud. Yeah. The Tamam Shud that was found within his pocket, that Tamam Shud means ending you know the end final the thing to remember about that is that it was rolled up really tight and and hidden inside the seams of some of the coat so that must have been i mean i don't know you just wonder like you know the whole rubia i mean i you know we'll be combing through that now well just the, looking for stuff yeah really the the thing that really baffles me is who was leaving the message? If that to mum should message was left on him for a message, was it left by the people that poisoned him? Was it left by him? Yeah, was it some sort of thing to, to, to point people in the right direction if something happened to and him? And why would they leave a code? Would it be because maybe that means something to the intelligence services that he was working with? Maybe that was a, a nod to them that, yeah, okay, we did it, and it was their, maybe their signature or something, you know? It's weird. There are some schools of thought that say that there was an argument that actually happened between Jessica Thompson and the Summerton man, and in fact, he was beside himself because he was so upset that they weren't going to be together. Maybe she wouldn't let him see his child, or maybe he just found out it was his child, but that he wasn't going to have access to it i'm talking about robin and that maybe he decided to commit suicide and maybe he did that via 
some kind of poison. You know, the, back in the day, they'd have the poison there teeth, was wouldn't always, they? Well, there was always, you know... The cyanide that they would, yeah. they would keep. Or, and there was that bag with that needle, don't forget. So maybe... Well, if that's true, we don't know for certain. Yeah, but, but if it was, he... then was that needle used to administer the poison and was that missed on autopsy, the needle mark, the puncture wound? Hmm. But then again, know. it was his stomach that was that was quite enlarged. So it yeah, sounds he... like it was something that was swallowed and his pharynx as, as well. So it was something that we would think was swallowed rather than injected. I don't know. You guys, we've pulled some information together and we're going to point you in the direction of where the information is. Go look and maybe come back to us with your ideas or your theories on yeah, what Yeah, like might they're going to come back to us. Well, they might do. <laughs> be, be interesting. Like, we're wrecking wonderful or the FBI. Well, no, hmm. go to the FBI as well, yeah. but I'm just saying let us know. <laughs> just kidding. Anyway, I think as much as I've enjoyed um, learning about the Summerton man, I really do think that I've had just about enough of him for one day. Yes, yeah, we've only spent about nine hours on him today. Yeah, so, I mean... Yeah, I'm going to spend nine hours of my time with you, so... Yeah, I know. Tell me about it. So, we're really happy to have all of you, and we're glad you listen, and you can do your spiel now. Okay, don't forget, you can find us in all the usual places, all your favourite podcast apps, and also on our website, which is www.weirdwackywonderful.co.uk. You can mail us at mail at weirdwackywonderful.co.uk, or you can hit our contact page on our website and you can get hold of us like that should you wish you can also get hold of some cool merchandise that we're now doing that is available on amazon and also on redbubble you can find the links to those by going to the relevant page on our website and if you wish to you can also follow us on facebook instagram and twitter and all those lovely places but until the next show where we will be bright-eyed and bushy-tailed or at least i will be Do remember to stay weird, Weird, wacky, wacky, and and wonderful. wonderful.